1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 142 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Uh, Before we begin, as always, I want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on March 22nd, and this data is from COIFIN. S&P 500 index up 3.15% for the month and down 5.34% for the year. The Dow up 2.7% in March and down 4.2% on the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 2.26% on the month and down 11.5% on the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 2.06% on the month and down 6.72% on the year. The Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, up 0.17% for the month and down 5.44% for the year. Three-month T-bill yield is at 0.51%. Two-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.17%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 2.39%. Big news headlines, current events from the week. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the first time since 2018 last week, uh, and they um, increased rates by 0.25%. Fed Chair Powell says that the American economy is very strong and well-positioned to handle tighter monetary policy. Um, Also, he said that we are attentive to the risks of further upward pressure on inflation and inflation expectations. He also said that officials could move faster on
2: policy tightening if needed. Yeah, it's interesting because he said that last week and he said the same exact thing at a speech on Monday and the market reacts negatively. And the next day, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he said the same thing he said in his press conference release last week and the market rallied significantly yesterday
1: right yeah i think people were kind of shocked to see the market action after the fed announcement and i think it just goes to show you that you know just hammers home the fact that the market is forward looking and bakes this stuff in well before it happens um you know it's kind of like going back to when we're in the midst of a sell-off the market tends to bottom before the new cycle gets more positive, right? So it's kind of like the same situation. I think a lot of it was already baked in. Good way of saying it. Um, Lastly, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, um, last Thursday, uh, the headline manufacturing activity index of the Manufacturing Business Outlook Survey rose to 27.4 in March, Uh, up from 16 in February. And the key new orders index came in at 25.8 versus 14.2 expectation. So uh, just a reminder uh, to keep it simple, anything above zero indicates month over month growth. So um, pretty strong numbers from a manufacturing standpoint, which I think is a good thing for the economy. Love it. New orders, key indicator. Yep. Uh, Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Uh, My first thing is a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on March 18th. Uh, Ryan posted uh, a tweet that said, History was made this week. For only the fifth time ever, the S&P 500 gained at least 1% for four consecutive days. This rare occurrence is also quite bullish as a year later, it has been up more than 20% every single time, with an average gain of 28%. Um, So I'll have Jenna throw this up on the YouTube uh, page for people to look at. Um, Again, very small sample size, Um, but the thing I want to point out here is this was also accompanied by Um, a pretty large breadth thrust. And what that means is there were a lot of stocks in the main indexes, you know, surging a couple percentage points um, across the board, across the board. And it's that's more healthy to me than just seeing the index getting dragged higher by the top 10 weightings in the S&P 500 since the top 10 names make up roughly 30% of the index. So the participation amongst all sectors was high. Yes, and typically once you see, when you see a lot of participation uh, coming off of market lows, tends to be a pretty good indicator that possibly we're getting near the end of, of this sell-off. Um, and it goes the opposite way too, right? So when markets are making, you know, higher highs and all-time highs, but you see breadth deteriorating and there's not as many stocks in the index making new highs, that's kind of a signal that, okay, we're being held up by the big boys, you know, and not necessarily all the other sectors are not participating in the market. Um, So it can go either way, but yeah, you're looking for a lot of names participating in these big up days in the market. Um, So something that we're going to continue to watch going forward. Good. Uh, next thing I had was a tweet from Andrew Thrasher on March 16th, and he tweeted, while already having seen heavy selling late last year, small and micro caps have not made a lower low along with large and mid caps uh, in 2022. So, again, we've mentioned this the past couple times on the podcast, but the past couple of weeks we've seen a relative outperformance in these small cap and micro cap names. So yeah. smaller, more US-based names, um, you know, nowhere near as close to like an Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Tesla uh, market cap. Um, and typically, these names are, are, are more risky. These are the first names that people usually dump when they sense that there's a risk-off environment coming. And it's usually the first names that they scoop up when they think it's a risk-on environment. Sure. So, um, you know kind of going back to what the wording he was saying was that the small and micro caps have not made a lower low you know we kind of define uptrends and downtrends by that right so in an uptrend you see higher highs and higher lows and in a downtrend you see
2: lower highs and lower lows correct right um, and you look for that to be broken either way to see when the trend begins to change yes absolutely um so obviously
1: not Uh, not biblical, but it's just, you know, more signs pointing towards, um, you know, we might be getting near the end of this thing. So I think everybody should be happy to see that. I think it's a great indicator. Last thing I had was a article written by our friend JC Peretz, who we have had on the show before. Uh, He wrote an article on March 16th titled Cash Levels Near Multi-Decade Highs. Uh, so, he says, very high cash levels are a good thing. Investors being scared to death is historically a net positive for stocks, not a negative. According to B of A's fund manager survey, we're near multi-decade highs for cash levels. And then he posts a chart. Hey, have you been reading my show notes? <laughs> are you talking about this next? Yeah, in a little bit. Huh. It's a good thing I get to go first then. Unbelievable. <laughs> um. So, he... Uh, he posted this chart uh, in this article that I'll have Jenna uh, throw up on the YouTube uh, stream as well, and it shows um, the uh, you know fund managers' average cash balance going back to '99. And <laughs> is it the same piece? Same, exact same chart piece. I okay. found elsewhere. Well, I guess it's going to save you time. Um, so uh, we're at, we're roughly back at cash levels um, seen in April of 2020, which people remember was the rally off of off of the COVID lows, uh, October 2016, which also marked the bottom, June of 2012, December of 08, and it goes back, but. Um, You know, he he rounds this up by saying if you were a buyer at those extremes, you were rewarded handsomely. If you sold into the hole each of those times, you probably didn't do too well. Heavy cash positions are fuel for a bull market. That's the money that ends up chasing into the end of end of cycles. They're parked in cash near the beginning of cycles. That's just a circle of life. It's a beautiful thing. Don't hate. Embrace it. All right. So I have a big point on this. I was going to make a mind side. Yeah, please just go ahead and Say what you want to say and get it out of the system right now. My biggest
2: point is the perception is institutional money is the smart money. And the common public is, I'll just say it, the perception is it's the dumb money. Mm -hmm. And I could argue, especially since COVID hit, it has been the opposite. It really has. Mm -hmm. There's been data coming out from custodians like, Uh, TD Ameritrade saying that individual investors, and they have analysis based upon account sizes and the account registration type, that those individuals were buying a lot of the dips along the way and doing it very, very in a smart fashion in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see this type of data that the smart money, the institutional money in March had absorbently high cash levels. And what has happened over the past seven, eight trading days? massive rally yeah and so i just want to throw it out there that this perception of institutional money is always the smart money is not exactly true and i'm going to add a tidbit of that when i talk about this about hedge funds because they're also drastically underweight okay so this institutional money is not necessarily equivalent to smart money no no i agree all right well you have the mic impressive Great minds think alike. Impressive, my friend. (laughs) All right. My first thing is update on volatility. This is a post by Bespoke Investment Group on on March 12th, Mark. They had a chart talking about when volatility begins to drop from elevated levels, how the S&P 500 tends to perform. Okay. Mm -hmm. So before I discuss this, the first thing I want to do is discuss what is the basic definition of the CBOE volatility index. Over the years of the podcast, we've referenced this from time to time. It tends to be in times of of volatility, Mm -hmm. okay? So the the VIX index is a real-time market index representing the market's expectations for volatility over the coming 30 days. The index spends a majority of its time somewhere between 15 to 20. Anything above 20 means volatility is elevated, and anything above 30, which is abnormal, means the market is expecting a lot of volatility. So with that being said, Bespoke looked at what happens to the S&P 500 index performance after that volatility index closes above 30 for seven straight trading days. Obviously, it's uncommon that this occurs. And so the data set is roughly about 1520 is the data set. And Jenna will post this chart uh, for our YouTube viewers right now. So you can see this. But but here's the kicker. When this volatility starts to come in, that obviously means money's coming back into the market, people are more certain, you don't have as much uncertainty in the market. Good way of saying it. Mm-hmm. So three months after this occurs, the S&P is higher by 8%, six months later, it's higher by 13 on average, and one year later, higher by 21%. It makes sense because the market tends to sell off when the VIX is elevated, right? And when the VIX starts to come in from such an elevated level for a sustained period of time, all that dry powder comes right back into the market. Mm-hmm. I found it as an interest, interesting statistic.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because that's like, you know, it's the the volatility index or VIX, also known as it's also known as the, the fear gauge. Yeah. Right? So when it's elevated, everyone thinks the world's going to end, but then when it sharply drops like it did over the past week, tend to see pretty quick reversal to the upside in equities.
2: I'm glad you said it in that fashion, Mark, because it, it, it points out something I've been wanting to discuss, which is this perception by certain investors that, you know, you can time your sale and your reentry. And what really happened in February and March, as you were seeing a lot of this selling, is perception by a lot of investors uh, were, was fundamentals are hanging in there, but the, the, the prices were very dislocated. And the feeling was, well, why can't I just sell Mark in the middle of February and time that sucker once, once it bottoms? Mm-hmm. It's because when that turn happens, it happens so fast mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to time getting back in. And then you start to think about the statistics of missing out on those 10 or 15 best days of the year and how drastic your returns come in. This is why I'd rather be an owner of quality names and try to constantly be timing the market. Yeah, well, it's it's hard because you don't know how bad a sell off's going
1: to get. So you get you know the mark the market six seven percent off the high. Let's say VIX spikes to thirty for one day, and you're like, I'm out. It could drop below thirty the next day and be a huge rally to the upside, right? And that could happen overnight when the market's not open. Correct, or it's you know the market's down. 15 more percent over the next couple of months so it's hard you don't
2: know how bad a sell-off's gonna get until it's over that's right a good way of saying it and on top of that remember it can always get worse and it can always get a lot better right right so there and there's tools you can use to gauge that but you
1: know there's not there's not one silver bullet or one thing that you can look at and say this is the bottom
2: or this is the top it's an art, not a and science. And that's not art. that's, that's not the game we play. Yep. We're not in it for that. It, it's, it's, it's very challenging. Again, this is why I'd rather own quality names that you can always fall back on their earnings and their future earnings, growth profile, their balance sheet, et cetera. My two cents. Yeah. All right. My next piece is about those out there who are watching and listening that are concerned about rising interest rates and how it's going to affect the stock market. Mm-hmm. This is directly targeted towards those individuals. Right. Okay. So Callie Cox, um, a, a, a blogger that I follow uh, on her Twitter account on March 15th, she is the eToro US market strategist. It's going to be a new platform coming out. I think they do crypto stocks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. She used to be the market strategist for Ally Financial. Yep. So she makes a few good points with this tweet that she posted with data And the first is that the S&P 500 index has risen in five out of the last six rate hike cycles. Jenna will put this uh, chart on our show notes, (coughs) and she'll put it up on our YouTube. Stocks looking back the last six cycles on an annualized return basis have done quite well so for example in the rate hike cycle of december of 15 to july 2019, p averaged 10.9 percent in june of 04 september of 07 averaged 8.4 percent per year the one negative data set june of 99 to january 01 negative 4.4 percent which is also kind of interesting to look at that as people have in this mind in their mind the tech bubble was just so much carnage mm. and it was for certain segments of the market. Mm-hmm. Good way of saying it. Yeah. February 94, July of 95, averaged 11.4% annualized. March of 88, June of 89, 20.9%. December 86, October 87, 15.8%. Once, I'm sorry, one, one once in 12 rate cycles since 1970 has the economy entered a recession in the 12 months after the first rate hike. So one of 12, rare. That is rare. Okay. And note that in 1980, the Fed hiked interest rates nine times in a year. Nine. Wow. She also noted of all the moving parts the market is focused on, and she named them. Ready? Russia, Ukraine fallout, raging inflation, another COVID surge in China high government debt load, surging oil prices, low interest rate environment, climbing this wall of worry. Mm -hmm. My response, underlying earnings and my perception for a lot of names, especially the ones that we own, are good. And I can argue a lot of this risk is already priced in and now the market can begin to climb that wall of worry. Mm -hmm. Your response?
1: Yeah, I just think that, you know, it puts it into perspective that you need to look at Uh, interest rates on a relative basis, Um, you know, we're, we have to remind people that we're still near historical low interest rates, you know, looking back over the past decade, two decades, right? So if we're still near historical low interest rates,
2: where else are people going to put the money? Exactly. I mean, my whole thing is, I'm sorry, but if if XYZ Corporation can't afford, you know, 2% more in interest rates on their debt and the company is going to go cash flow negative, Mm -hmm. you should know that going into it, something else is really wrong. Yeah, it's its own problem.
1: Um, So it's interesting. Um, You know, there's talk about a recession on the horizon. See if that happens or not. Um, you know, we talked about the yield curve and inversion the past couple of weeks and what that means. So people can check out the previous episodes if they want to hear more about that. But, um, you know, my just best guess, just interpreting the data and my best guess is as good as Louis sitting here on the floor, uh, is that it's, it's going to invert just because that's the rate of trend right now. Um, it feels like it's where it's headed. Right. But it might not.
2: Yeah. It might not. You know, and the other thing is if it does. Even though the data sets indicate recession, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Right. Because one could sit here and argue, well, all the Fed interaction, especially the last three years, is so unprecedented. There's no other data sets to compare this to. Right. Which is a factual. Yeah, absolutely. All right, here's my next thing. Institutional investor sentiment update. Sound familiar, Jenna? (laughs) So the first thing is, a lot of these charts are from the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. Ding, ding, ding. The first one is forward-looking profit expectations. And the percentage of these managers that think that they're going to be going up is almost at a historic low. The lows of April 2020, October '08, which was within five months of the bottom of the great financial crisis for the market, March of '01, and September of '98. Again, The feeling that institutional money is the smart money is not necessarily accurate. The next chart we've already talked about, which is the percentage of cash weightings. The next one is hedge fund equity exposure. So right now, the average hedge fund only has equity exposure of 25%. Now what it does is it nets out long and short, Mark. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too much in the weeds for the listeners. But just you look at net long exposure, It's crazy low right now, Mm -hmm. okay? So the last thing I have is the percentage of fund managers expecting a weaker economy in 12 months sits at almost two-thirds of respondents at 64%. That is the worst percentage going back to July of 2008. Now, why is all of this important in my view, Mark? Institutional sentiment is poor. This means that many institutional managers have already positioned their portfolios for tougher times. This makes me feel the market has overly priced in negativity and the surprises I feel will come to the upside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, this past week or two, it sentiment got as bad as it has been in a long time. And everyone was just like, here we go. World War three, high inflation, worry about stagflation, recession, gas prices are through the roof. The world's ending. And right now, as of yesterday, the S&P 500 index is only about five and a half percent down on the year. How how, how bad does it feel? Tell me how it feels. It feels so much worse than that.
2: It does. So much
1: worse than that. It does. Even to me and you, not just not just our clients or other investors. It feels bad to everybody. Oh, yeah. But that's why you can't let the the news cycle and that narrative
2: mess with your mess with your plan. thing I've always said at the end of the day is what drives stock prices uh, and the biggest way is obviously earnings. earnings and if you have short-term dislocations in stock prices due to the news narrative that's going out there, and if you feel that the actual underlying earnings are hanging in there and actually getting better in certain circumstances, the share price sell-off's wrong. <laughs> that was a good rant. <laughs> You can tell can I, you think the I think about this stuff all the time. There, I gotta think about this stuff all the time. So um, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna get up here in a second, and I'm gonna welcome uh, Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week. Before I get up here, anything else you want to discuss between the two of us? No, I don't think so. Um, we'll see. You know. What happens here over the next couple of
1: months? I think we're getting into some uh, seasonal strength. Looking back at history, uh, at this point in the year, so especially with the weakness we've seen at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So as things are getting better, it again doesn't necessarily mean that we're completely out of the woods yet. Um, I can tell you one of three things is going to happen: is that we're going to bust through and return to all-time highs pretty soon. We're going to keep going lower. Or we're just going to chop sideways. will be, be one of those three things.
2: <laughs> and I know that's probably not a lot of comfort to a of people, but... We're certain about that. We're certain about that. Um, the one thing I want to leave with before I turn this over to Taylor is... I've gotten a lot of questions over the past week about real estate. And I'm not considering us real estate experts by any means. No. Uh, but what I am going to do next week is I'm just going to provide some basic data. And I'm going to share... You know, mortgage rates, what I'm seeing happening with housing starts and how that could relate to prices in the future. It's going to be a pure opinion, my two cents. But I have been getting more and more questions about this. Uh, In fact, over the past two days, I've gotten two specific questions and I've used and I've shared those charts um, with those people that I plan on sharing with everyone next week in my show notes and I've already prepared. So definitely, if you're curious about my thoughts in regards to, Uh, Real estate prices, though it's my opinion, I'll be discussing that next week. Okay, look forward to it. All right, I'm going to get up now. We'll see you next week, everybody.
1: (laughs) Back by popular demand. Uh, Apparently, listeners are sick and tired of me giving the (laughs) financial planning topic of the week and think that Taylor does a better job, so we're bringing back the person that people want. So welcome back, Taylor.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be back.
1: What do you have for us this week?
3: Yeah, so I feel like every time I've been on, I've talked about tax. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to switch it up a little bit this week. Um, I read an article on Forbes, and it's called California is Ending Its Asset Test for Medicaid Long-Term Care. Is it a mistake? Okay. So this really caught my eye because, as you know, the asset limit for Medicaid is extremely low. Mm-hmm. So, to qualify for Medicaid, there are some financial requirements that you have to abide by. Okay. Those include income limitations and asset limitations. And since every state's a little different in those limits, I'm going to focus on Ohio's numbers. Okay. So, if you have a household size of two people, the maximum annual income for that household cannot exceed $24,353. Wow, that's low. (laughs) Yeah, and if you have a household size of three people, the maximum annual income for that household is $30,630.
1: So only a couple thousand dollars more than a two-person household, wow.
3: So in addition to your income being capped, your asset limit if you're single is $2,000. And if wow. you're a married couple and both spouses are applying for Medicaid, it's 3000
1: Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: Those are low levels. And, you know, the thing we've been asked about this because, you know, we've had clients or just people that want more information about this is, hey, I'm trying to get, you know, an older parent or a grandparent to qualify for Medicaid so that their care can be paid for. And it's really, really hard to meet these levels because they're so low. And you would think in the current inflationary environment that we're in that these levels would be raised to a certain extent, albeit, you know, if they're trying to keep up with inflation, those numbers are only going to go up by seven or 8%, which isn't much. But this is one of the more really difficult planning topics to try to figure out for people that have a family member that wants to qualify for Medicaid because the limits are so hard to meet.
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you have so many different moving parts. You have the five year look back. Mm-hmm. Um, certain assets are considered countable, and some are considered not countable. Right. And it just it gets really um, nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. So. Countable assets that are included in this limit would be cash, stocks, bonds, investments, checking, savings accounts, and then real estate where you don't reside, so like a vacation home. Mm-hmm. I know that your primary residence, and I believe one vehicle, are considered non-countable, yep. so you don't have to worry about that. But the article I referenced at the beginning states that soon California residents with personal care needs will be eligible for Medicaid no matter how much money and other assets they have. On July 1st, the state will increase the program's asset limit from $2,000 for an individual to $130,000. Whoa! (laughs) And from $3,000 for a couple to $195,000. And the state plans to end this limit entirely as soon as 2024.
1: Wow, that's crazy. I mean... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just goes to show you how expensive the cost of living has gotten in California, you know? Um, it'll be interesting to see if other states follow suit, um, but that's that's a pretty big jump. I mean, that's a, that's a change where the politicians in California are like, we've gotten this wrong for a long time, mm-hmm. in my opinion.
3: <laughs> yeah, and when I read this, my, my first thought was, are other states going to implement this? And then how are they going to pay for this? Right. You know, because I'm sure, you know, the people that need financial assistance that aren't currently qualifying are barely over right. that asset or income limit And in California has a huge population. Right. So. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where You know, when people are younger and healthy, it's hard to have that conversation about getting something like a long-term care policy. But, you know, in this situation, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, it's helpful because you have a policy that could pay for a place that you want your elderly parent or grandparent to be in, because I don't want to throw all of them into the same group, but just in my experience... When you have a long-term care policy, you're able to afford a very nice place for one of your loved ones, as opposed to a place that's getting paid for by Medicaid doesn't tend to have the same amount of benefits uh, or the same level of care. Um, So that's just one thing that people, I think, need to consider, that if they have the disposable income uh, to do so, and they have a family history of elderly parents or grandparents needing long-term care, I think it's something that you have to at least consider.
3: Mm-hmm. No, it's, I think it's very important to, to talk about with your family. So um, the article also referenced one problem, and it said, making Medicaid long-term care available to Californians who need this assistance, regardless of wealth, will make it much harder to build political support for the tax increases necessary <laughs> to fund a public insurance program.
1: Right, exactly, because the money's got to come from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So,
3: Yeah, and something I thought was interesting is that they also mentioned they only expect 21,000 people to benefit from the asset limit increase.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right and then that's... once
3: it's eliminated all together they only expect 18,000 people to benefit wow. they didn't specify if it was I'm assuming it was for the whole state right they didn't they weren't specific about that but wow I you would expect those numbers to be a lot higher a lot
1: higher yeah something mm-hmm. funny doesn't smell right there Mm-hmm. that's interesting yeah I was hmm.
3: I was really surprised but I mean in general I think it could be a really positive thing for mm-hmm. those individuals who need those assist- yeah, assistance. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And there's definitely, there's people out there that need the help. Um, I think the challenge for the government in the past is trying to figure out the best way to determine who needs the help and who doesn't. Um, and there's always been loopholes around that, you know, going back to the inception of our government. So um, Yeah, it's gonna be really interesting but i know that you know because california or la in particular has a pretty large homeless population um and there's been funds designated to help the homeless population but it doesn't seem that things are getting any better so you just wonder you know where is that money going and i think that especially if i was a resident of california i would want to see a detailed laid out plan of how these you know, asset-level increases and income-level increases are going to affect change. And if it's only 18,000 people that's going to benefit, I'm not saying those people shouldn't be benefited, but shouldn't we be looking at something else that's going to help a larger portion of the population that needs it? Mm-hmm. So um, again, that's all just my opinion, but you know, interesting to see what happens with this because it is very challenging for people to meet those limits right now all across the country, really.
3: So. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and if they make any changes or if other states want to follow behind California and, you know, do the same thing. So, yeah,
1: that yeah, will be interesting to interesting to see what happens. So thanks for bringing that up, Taylor. Um, anything else you want to add to that before we close it out for the week?
3: Oh, no, that was it. OK,
1: <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to episode number 142 of the Independent Advisors Podcast. We hope you all have a great week, and we will be back next week with episode 143.
0: Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jess of Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public.